Wow. Uh, uh, my name's Matthew. I'm, my name's Matthew, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> um, it sure is good to... That's the most honest introduction I've ever had. Right? Usually they just blow smoke up your butt, and then... But not in Kentucky. Uh, it's been such a pleasure just, just to watch all this. I, I mean... From the announcements to the newcomer with the flak jacket, it's just been amazing, you know. Uh, I have to find the first announcement. It's the joy of living in defiance. I just love that. I want to I keep that poster. I want to continue the joy of living in defiance. You know? um, I just set a timer, but, but don't let that give you hope. Uh, there's no dance, so they gave me three hours to talk to you, so uh, all the 13-stepping is postponed. Um, no, but, but my sobriety date is May 16th, 1993, and that's all God, you know. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, I, I, and you know, I'm not going to talk about grace in the intro, because that's all I'm going to talk about for the next 43 and a half minutes. Um, I love this saying, I was thinking of all the people that banded together to help me solve my problems. And, there, you know, without being sarcastic, there were a lot of people not in AA, you know. Uh, judges, uh, police officers that were kind of uppity, you know, and uh, or kind of they just, they were so rule-oriented. And uh, that's no, I got arrested the day I got my 90-day chip, you know, so uh, I'll tell you about that uh, in one and a half hours. Um <laughs> No, I, I really, I, I, how many people in their first year here? Okay, there's enough people here in their first year. Okay, good. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I was trying to do the math during the countdown. There's over 1,300 years of, of sobriety in this room. Right. That's total bullshit. I can't do math. I'm not, but I, I, I knew there were over 1,000. I thought 1,300 sounds, you know, so cool. Um, but you know, I'm just going to start with the day I worked the first step, because I really want to get to what's happening now, and, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous with all my heart. I, if you walked into anything in my house and picked it up and, and turned it over, even my children, <laughs> on the bottom it says property of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and that's honestly true. And, and because Tommy, who was awesome, right, Tommy? Because Tommy refused to cry, that has been left to me. And believe me, I will not let you down. Uh, my sponsor says I'm a leaker, you know. And, uh, I don't know. I, I used to get embarrassed about it, and now I don't, because I am so full of joy. And I didn't start out that way. And in you know, May of 1993, I was 30 years old. Uh, I was wanted by the police. I was wanted by people that scared me way more than the police. They did not band together to solve my problem, <laughs> those particular people. Um, I had a mother uh, who I loved dearly and, and a father who were married together for 45 years at that time. And they lived two miles from my house. And my mother was dying of cancer, and uh, I just couldn't get out the door you know, I, to see her. I called her a lot and said I was coming over, and, and um, she would say the same thing. She would say, that would be so lovely. She didn't say, you called yesterday. She just said that would be lovely because she was too tired to give me a hard time. And I didn't know I was doing that. And 
I lived at the beach. You know, I'm from Redondo Beach. I lived in a, a beach apartment. The beach ocean was about 100 yards out my back door, and I never saw it. You know, it's big, so it's hard to miss. You know, <laughs> but I never went out there. You know, uh, and I heard it a lot at night. And when you're when you've been drinking, and it's and it's late at night, the ocean. You, you're like, what is that noise? <laughs> like over and over. I I had the I had the most well-oiled screen door because at 3 a.m. I'm like, this thing just keeps opening and slamming shut. It's like. And it was God outside going, come outside, come outside. But I lived like Gollum in this apartment, you know. I used to sit on my couch and plan the day and then fall asleep and wake up the next day sitting on my couch planning the day. And, uh, you know, and and, uh, I worked the first step on May um, May 9th, 1993, and my sobriety is May 16th, 1993. And I've only told you a little bit about what it was like. you know, I told you the tip of the iceberg, and you know, on the outside of my life, it was a moonscape. I had been a professional touring musician. I'd recorded albums. I'd, I'd uh, been in a couple of, of popular bands, and and I drank myself out of my rock and roll career. And and I always think that's all I need to say about what it was like. I drank myself out of a rock band. You know, and, uh, uh, three of them actually. And. Uh, yeah, that's really, that's really, I feel like I accomplished something, you know, like that's hard to do. It, if they, they put the bar so low and I'm like, I think I can crawl under that bar, you know, and, uh, and I went diligently to work. And, and I laugh about it, and it's funny, uh, 30 years later, but, uh, you know, I practiced all my life for that. I was given talent and opportunities, and I drank everything away. I used to say I pawned it all to pay for the party. So what happened on May 9th, May 9th is my brother, I'm the youngest of four in an Irish Catholic family. I used to say, you know, my, my alcoholism is not my parents' fault. They're lovely people. They loved each other. They loved me. They both worked jobs so I could go to college, and they cared for all of us, and, and they put us first, and my alcoholism is not, is not their fault. I'm Irish Catholic. That's their fault. And uh, <laughs> so... Many years of therapy late, later, you know, I was, I was drug up by the witches of God. I had nuns for teachers, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's okay. I've learned God is not going to strike me dead. I was actually leading a retreat in Hawaii, and it was an old, it was an, a beautiful place in the hills in Hawaii, and there was this old nun sweeping over there, and I said, hey, sister, I was, I was raised by the sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet. I'm doing the, the Alcoholics Anonymous retreat here. And she goes, you were raised by the Sisters of St. Joseph at Carondelet? And she said, yeah. And she goes, they're here. And I about shat myself. I was like, <laughs> and I said, is Sister Dennis Ann here? Yeah. And, and she, she said, no, bless her heart, Sister Dennis Ann passed away two years ago. And I had to hide the glee on my face. I was like, oh, Lord, that's, that's a, the earth is a safer place. And, uh, <laughs> But my brother called and he said, hey, I know you're having car trouble. Anybody else Irish? Anybody? Yeah, what a shock. Um, he said, he called, my brother called and said, I know you're having car trouble. I always think this is so funny because in my family, a car trouble is you just have the key to the car. You know, it's like there's a car on earth. I just haven't seen it in a long time. And, uh, and that was my, my car trouble. 
But, but no one had seen me, and, and I was a successful human being. And, and, he, and he called up and said, hey, I know you're having car trouble, so I, tomorrow's mom's, it's Mother's Day, and it might be mom's last, because my mother had very serious cancer. And um, all I heard, I heard this, it's mom's last, Mother's Day. And he said, we just want to make sure you're going to be there on time, and so I'll come pick you up tomorrow for brunch. It's probably like 6.30 at night. I said, okay, great. And, and, I, and I, I just kept thinking, it's mom's last, Mother's Day, and... I can't tell you how much I love that woman. She was the kindest, most... She was this quiet, observant person. You know, the reason I became a musician is my mom taught sometimes at my school. And in seventh grade, she came home from school, and she said, Matthew, you don't get picked first for the team, do you, darling? And I'm like, no, ma'am, I, I hate that. I don't hate sports. I just am completely indifferent to them. Like, I, I, I'm so glad the Los Angeles Kings won the Super Bowl this year, but I just, <laughs> I, I don't have that uh, gene, you know. And, uh, and she said, do you want to play an instrument? And I about flew. I just, just sit and listen to music in a rocking chair with headphones. I'm also a little bit punchy because I haven't slept very much. Thanks, Nick. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I jumped out of my chair and said, I want to play the guitar, Mom, because there were guys who I thought, like, had magic in their fingers, you know. Eric Clapton and Steve Howe from Yes, uh, a phenomenal player. And uh, uh, George Harrison, the most underrated guitar player on earth. He's so, so lyrical and beautiful. And I just jumped up and said, I want to play the guitar. And she said, okay. She was so surprised by my enthusiasm. And she bought this guitar, and I didn't know we were broke. We ate soup for like two weeks. I didn't know why. And, and I, you know, she just went and got a can because she spent all the money on my guitar. And it wasn't a good guitar, but I didn't know. It looked like magic to me. And, and I went in there, and I pulled around on it, and she could tell I wasn't getting anywhere, and, and she got me a teacher and changed my life. So this woman... It's her last Mother's Day tomorrow. And I want to hurry this up, but I decided I'm going to get some flowers. I'm going to do the laundry because I don't have any clean clothes. I've been unemployed. I got fired from another job that was beneath me <laughs> eight months before. You know, I took the job going, this is so lame. And then they go, you, can't, you don't seem to be able to do this job. And they fired me. I was managing a restaurant. And uh, after I got thrown out of the last band, I came back from the East Coast and... Um, it's so funny. They go, I was a waiter for a minute, and they said, you know, you got two degrees. And I said, yeah. And they said, you want to be a manager? And I thought, God, that's so lame, managing a, a Marie Callender's restaurant. And they go, so anyway, here's the meat schedule that's delivered on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and here's the inventory for the bar, which kind of got my interest. And then, uh, and, and here is the phone numbers for all the waitresses. And I went, oh, okay, this is, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, I was perfectly fitted to this task, and uh, so they fired me from that. And uh, yeah, but don't worry. It was right when I came down the stairs. I was so I was stunned that I got fired from this lame job. And uh, I came down the stairs, and one of the waitresses said, "Hey, I need to talk to you." And I, I was so I was so ashamed, and, and and I go, "I can't really talk to you right now." And she goes, "I'm pregnant." That's what I said. Yeah, <laughs> but I said it was so much more feeling than you just did, and uh, and I and I, I'm going to alienate half the group here right now. But I'm going to tell you, I, if you had lined up the waitresses at Marie Callender's and said, "Which one do you want to get pregnant?" I would have said, "Not her." <laughs> oh, I know. Everybody hates me now. I, I want to remind you, I am not running for president. I am speaking at an AA meeting. Yeah. So. 
I thought she was selfish and self-centered. That's funny. She was 18. I was 30 years old. And I'm like, oh, my God, not her. That's who I was. So my brother tells me this. I'm going to get cleaned up. I'm going to get some flowers. I can write a hell of a card because I have these really useful, useful degrees. I have a degree in English literature and a degree in religious studies. So uh, I can write a hell of a Mother's Day card. <laughs> Six years of college. And... Uh, so anyway, I sat down to think about it, and, and uh, he honked his horn, and I was still sitting there. I've been drinking all night, and I, I ruined it. I ruined Mother's Day. I ruined my mother's possible last Mother's Day. And I just remember their faces. I just remember the horror on their faces. And my brother took me out of there, and I never knew what I did. I didn't know for years. On my 20th AA birthday, I asked my sister, who's my best friend, I said, what happened on Mother's Day? And she said, we will not speak of that. What could, what could I have done? And she said, you were vile to our dear mother. And I just always did stuff like that. I meant to do the good thing, and I did the bad thing. And I don't respect anyone except my wife as much as I respected Dorothy Mitchell. And yet I was vile to her on her special day. And my, the reason I worked the first step is my brother and I argued all the way home, and I, I have no idea what this argument was about. And uh, I was most glad he took me out of there, but we were screaming at each other. And if you're in one of those Irish Catholics, you know, that's not unusual. <laughs> it's not, not a, a big, no one's going to remember. It's like swans on a lake, right? It's like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Like, oh, that's how my family was. And, and he was my older brother. So I get, out of, I get out of the car and I slam the door because I'm so tired of losing. You know, I'm the youngest. He's seven years older than nine and then 12. They're, they're Irish triplets. And then I was a, a, a mistake. And uh, my dad said, but the best mistake I ever made. Oh, 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 to lighten the blow. And I didn't want to lose. And I'll tell you about Grace. The things that set the wheels of grace in motion are disguised. And Tom said it. I thought it was the worst thing. And it was the best thing. And the thing that set my, my grace in motion was I couldn't let go of the fight. And I walked in my apartment and I paced around and I gave him time to drive home. Now, my brother was a raging alcoholic when I was a kid. He's 12 years sober now. I didn't really drink till I left home. I couldn't hurt my parents that way. And I went off and got two degrees and went on the road with a band, you know, and hid from them. And I'm not going to let him, I'm not going to let him win this argument. Now, this is alcoholism, right? My brother's sober 12 years. He's so obnoxiously sober, he bought a house with 12 steps to the front. Sorry. And like, wow. And, uh... I don't even know why that's significant at the time because I wasn't in AA. He goes, hey, there's 12 steps to the front door. I'm like, fascinating, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but I know now why. And, uh, and my brother is married and loyal. My brother is raising his children. My brother is visiting my mother. And I thought I had the moral higher ground in this argument. Gollum, who just ruined Mother's Day, is going to win. And I, I don't know about you, but that's a good example of my alcoholism. I'm an animal. I'm a beast. And I think I'm better than you. And I called him up. 
And I let him have it. I don't know what I said. I'd love, love to have the recording of that conversation. Because I just went, blah, 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 you know, for a, a long time, it seemed like. And he was very quiet. Uh, and then there was a long pause. And then he said, Matthew, I think you have a problem with alcoholism. And I said, of course I do. And I worked the first half of the first step, and I had no idea that I did that. And I didn't plan on saying that. When that came out of my mouth, there was a, there wasn't, I can still imagine, I can still feel, I can still smell what that room smelled like at that moment. I can feel the beige phone in my hand. There was a cord to the floor. There was a phone on the floor that was beige. There was an empty gin bottle at 2 o'clock. I had green shag carpet, and I can tell you what the, 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 the little dust through the Venetian blind slants of light look like. And the only reason I think that I can do that is for one second I stepped into the present moment. And I had just not lived there. And I had told the truth inadvertently. And my brother said the funniest thing. He goes, don't go anywhere. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. Yeah, like, like, uh, I was going to move to that end of the couch in October, but... Uh, I haven't gone anywhere in a year. (laughs) And he raced to my house, and and he raced to my house, and I love him for that because my brother showed up in less than the time it should have been physically possible. He had to break laws to get there, and I know why. I know why now, and I didn't know why then because my brother heard the most precious thing in recovery, in Alcoholics Anonymous, where you're one of these people with a year or one of these people with 30 years, it's still the most precious, vital thing, and it's called willingness. And when it leaves you, you leave us. But I didn't know that he knew that the window of willingness was very short in the early days, and he didn't want to miss it. You know, I was thinking about listening to Tom and and the old-timers and just being around you guys and the energy here, man. It's just amazing, right? And I studied religion. I studied religion accidentally. I studied religion completely by accident. I was going for a musical degree, but I was gigging every night, so I quit that. I kept going for the English degree. And my counselor pulled me in and said, you know, you're getting a minor in religious studies. And I said, no, that's fascinating. How did I do that? And she goes, you you just keep going to these classes, right? And I've studied religions, and and there's people argue about God or the God thing in AA. And whether you like it or not, this is a spiritual tribe. And the re- one of the defining factors is in the material tribe, wealth is monetary and physical. And in a spiritual tribe, our currency is our experience. That's what Tom gave us, his currency. That's what Marvin's going to give somebody who ha- can't exchange currency with some of you because of the shape or the type or the kind of your experience. Right? So I know that this is a spiritual experience and, and all I have for you is my currency of my experience. And my brother shows up to kept, capture me in my willingness. And he walks in the door and he inhales. <laughs> he goes, let's go to the beach. You know, and, uh, it was a little ripe in there. You know, I, uh, I didn't, I, when you live in the cat box, you can't tell, you know, that there's, uh, I, I don't have, I didn't have a cat. I was the cat, you know. And, uh, but anyway, and all I had to do was open a window. I live next to the ocean, you know. But uh, he said, let's go down to the beach. And we walked down to this lifeguard stand. I remember I grabbed this pack and a half of Marlboro Reds. And I'm shaking to light this because I'm scared. 
I, I honestly thought my brother's going to kick my ass and I'm never going to drink again. <laughs> I, I really thought that uh, because, you know, the, the Mitchell one-step program. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, it's, I, it took me years to realize I was hoping he'd do that because I was such a terrible person. I just wish somebody would belt me in the face and make it all stop. Like, somebody call me on my BS, please. But he didn't. He sat on the other side of this lifeguard stand, and he held my hand, and he lit my cigarette. And my brother, who had quit smoking, took a cigarette out of my pack and lit it and smoked with me. And we were quiet for a while. And then he looked over my head, and he, and he started talking to me about how he felt when our mom and dad threw him out of our house when he was 18. I was 11 years old. And I think it was the darkest day in our family. I couldn't believe we did that. I couldn't believe we put one of ours on the street. And my brother's sitting there telling me how he felt that day. And I was curious about that because I remembered it. And then he started talking to me about how he felt when his wife and son, who was two or three, kicked him out of their house. Uh, And I remember that. I was 14 years old. He called me on the phone. My cool brother, who played the drums like nobody's business, Looked kind of like Paul McCartney and was a really good businessman. Had one guy left to call. And it was me. And he got thrown out of his house and he was sobbing. And I remember what I said to him. I said, why don't you quit drinking? Because I had the clarity of youth. I hadn't had a drink. I was 14. And he said, you don't understand. And I didn't. And then he started talking to me about how he felt when he lived in his car. And I remember that. I was 17, 18, my senior year of high school. I used to tell my dad, I was honest, I said, I need to take my guitar and my amp to the music room, I got rehearsal, and he said, okay, take the car, but I had to get up so early, I had to drive down there, I had the keys to the music room, because I was a trusted, responsible kid, I put my Fender Twin amp in there, and my Stratocaster, then I'd drive around, try to find, my brother had a gray 1952 Cadillac with fins, it was primer gray, he later called it his newcomer apartment, (laughs) but I would find it, if I, I didn't always find it, but he had like five places he parked, and I'd go up there, and if he was laying in the back, and I'd just wait till he breathed, because he was always asleep. It was 6 o'clock in the morning. Or if he wasn't in the car, I'd just leave a note. I'd just, I loved you. And in between all of this, talking to me about how he felt, he would look at me through the smoke and go, what's your plan? And I'd think, God, he doesn't even know that I have, like, four warrants out for my arrest. He thinks I'm the college kid. And then he'd tell me what it felt like to do in one of his stages. He goes, what's your plan? And I think, God, he doesn't know that I pushed that girl who's pregnant down a flight of stairs last night. She was eight and a half months pregnant. And, you know, some of the reasons I, I try to walk up right to the edge when I get the chance to do this and tell you who I really was is because there's people in here in their first year recovery And you're looking at all of this. And you're looking at how good Tommy looks now. And you're looking at all the laughter and the the new shoes. And you're thinking, this is good, but I'm bad. And this might work for you, but I'm bad. And I can tell you, I was raised with the best character and and morals that anybody could have given me. And the success of this program has nothing to do with how badly you've degraded yourself. It has no effect on how successful you will be if you take a hold of these simple spiritual exercises. That's why I tell you this. 
And I wasn't a monster. She was standing in the doorway, and she wanted to go to the doctor. And I'd been drinking all night. And she said, you may not want to drink today. we got to go to the doctor. And I, and I pushed her. I grabbed her wrist, and I pushed her out of the doorway because I, I just she was too much reality at that moment and I pushed her too hard and you know you know when you push someone too hard so I quickly slammed the door I am not as ashamed of the fact that I pushed an eight and a half month pregnant girl down a big flight of cement stairs as I am about what happened next I went inside my house and drank the rest of my gin I never looked to see what happened so while my brother's asking me what's your plan I'm working the second half of the first step. I'm realizing my life has become unmanageable. There's no way out. So I'd like to tell you I surrendered, but I ran out of cigarettes. (laughs) And he kept talking. And I'm like, well, we need to wind this up. uh, So I, I, I blurted out on my last drag of the, the filter of my Marlboro Red. I said, all right, all right, I'll go to AA. And this, like, wise Buddha disappeared. And my brother came back. And he goes, you're not going to AA, man. You're going to a hospital. And I said, oh, no, I, you know, I'm really busy. Right? And I thought I was busy. Right, and he, I go, how long? And he goes, thirty days. I'm like, thirty days? Jesus Christ, man! How am I going to leave all this for thirty days? Right? You know, who's not going to pay my bills? You know, you know, what am I thinking? You know, and and Tom touched on it a little bit, but you know, we are insane. I almost killed a woman and my child. The night before that, I had a gun in my mouth. But Tuesday, what? The hospital? Let's not get overexcited here. You know? What is wrong with us? You know? And I seriously was trying to think of some, you know, you know, depth of my day to express why I couldn't leave. And he ignored me, which was a wise choice. And, and we walked up to my apartment. I went up the stairs. He walked straight and he yelled up at me. He goes, Matthew... And I said, yes. And he said, please don't die. It's going to take a few days. And I thought, he knows about the gun. And I, I'm not a gun owner. I had a roommate that was, and he, I was subletting. He, it was a long story, but he, I knew where everything was. And I'd put everything together and the bullets. And I'd such a Catholic boy, I'd open the window. I'd take, go outside, take the screen. I don't want anyone to clean up later. And I'd stand there and pray for courage. Yeah. So I worked the first step in May 9th. 1993, what happened May 16th, the reason that's my last drunk is May, sobriety date, it's May 15th, my brother called again around 6 o'clock, he said, hey man, we figured it all out, mom and dad are going to come get you tomorrow, Uh, I'm going to come get you, I'm going to take you to mom's and dad's house, because they got to sign a bunch of stuff for insurance, and they're taking you out to Palm Desert, and and I I would love to tell you, I hung up the phone and go, oh great, I'm going to rehab, you know, (laughs) but I had had done some thinking, you know, and I was afraid. And I, I, I pawned my last guitar. And I got as drunk as I possibly could. And I woke up on the floor, you know, sort of on the floor. There was part of me was on the wall. And it's, it, my neck hurt a lot. I would say, uh, 
I always feel like I need to explain the details, you know. It's like, anyway, I was, in, I was hurting, and I was, the phone rang, and I w- opened up my eyes to this phone ringing, and it sounded just like the person who left their cell phone on during the last meeting. And uh, the old-fashioned ring. And, uh, and I reached over there, and, and I grabbed the phone because I thought it was my brother. I picked up the phone, and this woman said, hey, your daughter was born. We've been calling you all night. Can you come to the hospital? And I used to lie a lot, so I said, yes. And, uh, and, I, and I, I hung up the phone, and I'm sitting there. Reality is coming in fast, you know. And uh, so I go and get my car key and a bunch of optimism and walk out my front door. And, uh, and this is so perfect. I, I, I went to the wrong hospital. Okay. Alcoholics Anonymous is a program where it tells us over and over we're selfish and self-centered. I went to the hospital where I was born, right? Because that's where babies come from, you know? And I, I get there in my lame AMC car that, like, coughs into the parking lot. I found it. I found my car. Grace, 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 right? And I go in, and this poor candy striper, she's like 108 years old, you know, uh, she wasn't the candy stripers like the porn that Tommy was watching. She was like 108 years old. You know? I just walked by. I saw it with the video section. And, uh, and I'm yelling at her to look again. And she said, sir, I can look as many times as you want. They're not here. And I looked like something out of the Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I, had, I had gray... OR scrubs on. I had a, a, a wife beater with the hole in it. I thought it was Marlon Brando. I looked like a boat person. I weighed 108 pounds. You could count my ribs through my shirt. But I thought I was pretty badass. And I'm standing there and I'm like, look again. And I'm not Pirates of the Caribbean the movie. Pirates of the Caribbean the ride. You know, like today, you know, bad after 50 years of rotting over that pond. And uh, so I go out to my car and, and I started crying because I felt like the biggest loser on earth and I put my head on the steering wheel of that car and I decided I could go home and shoot myself I knew I could do it and I put the keys in the car and this car it didn't backfire it like bucked like a bronco it went (laughs) and my head flew off of that steering wheel and the name of the right hospital came into my head now I've got to tell you If you don't believe in God, let's try to believe in grace. And I'm going to tell you why I know that is a moment of grace. I know it. I mean, like I know my eyes are green. Because I meditate. It's a step. It's not extra credit. If you guys want to catch up, yeah. Step 11, I meditate every day. Every day for 18 years, I've meditated every day. And if you guys have tried it for three or four days, which most people, that's their, that's their limit. <laughs> you know, if you tried it for three or four days, the first thing you learn is you're not in charge of the thoughts that come into your head. It's just traffic. And sometimes you hitch a ride, right? But I wasn't trying to think of the name of the right hospital. I was trying to have enough courage to blow my head off. In the name of the right hospital, an involuntary electrical synapse went off in my head. And that's grace. And I drove to the hospital. I didn't go to the gun. And I ran in that hospital, and I, my sponsor calls it lizard brain. I'm running up the stairs. I'm trying to find the room. They're all, there's like algebra problems. You ever see rooms numbered and, and 
what the hell? Let's do one through ten. You know, but it's 11 dash, 5 dash, 6, here the 5 divided by 4. And I'm running down, like trying to find this thing. I'm hung over. I got my Marlon Brando Pirates of the Caribbean outfit on. And I'm looking around and I find the room. And I run into the room, and there's Anna, who I was not prepared to see, which I should have been prepared for, but, but I hadn't been thinking it through. And I walk in, and have you ever seen a woman that just had a baby? It looks like a truck hit him, right? Like, it's bad. Or, you know, God bless the, that birth and all that, but, you know, she looked bad. And, uh, and I don't really love her, but her neck disappeared, and she got boobs, like, since the last time I saw her. And she's coming at me. She gets out of the bed like the elephant man. And I'm standing there. And, and I remember that the last time I saw her, I threw her down a flight of stairs. And I'm embarrassed. And she's glad to see me. And as she's getting closer to me with all of this going on to her, with her, she looks more beautiful than she's ever looked. And I don't know why. There's an authenticity about her. There's a genuine presence about her. And I felt like the worst person on earth. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I thought she was going to hug me, which would have been bad for both of us. And uh, (laughs) she leans into this plastic box and pulls out Phoebe Rose, this perfect Martian. I mean, she had a giant head. Perfect. (laughs) She's 100% Irish. She's on the top 90th percentile in head size. And uh, (laughs) they hand her to me. And she's glowing at me, and she's perfect. She's so, she looks great compared to her mother, and she's so pretty. And, uh, and I felt like I wanted to die. I felt bile come up in my throat, and I lied. The first thing my daughter heard me say was a lie. I handed the baby to Anna, and I said, everything's going to be all right. And I knew. I actually relaxed, because I'm going home to shoot myself. Because this, I can't, I'm going to hurt them. And I, got, I ran down the stairs and I prayed out loud. I said, God, please make it so these ne- women never see me again. And I got in my AMC car and galloped home, you know. <laughs> and I ran up the stairs and I knew exactly how I was going to do it. I wasn't going to open the window. I was just going to walk in the bedroom before I lost my courage and my brother was standing on my porch. Grace. You know, I used to think when I was newly sober, Grace was like... Um, well, like Amazon packages, you know. It's like I do something nice and one would come in the mail, you know. Or I'd, like I, you know, tell the truth once and God would hit me with a little light. He'd move over, Mary, i got to hit Matthew with grace. You know, but I've been here a long time. And it's not true. We're swimming in it. And the reason I can't see it is I'm in the bondage of self. And the reason these beautiful women repulsed me is because when you're in the bondage of self, you're looking through a little pinhole of the box around your head, and all I can see is, what does this say about me? What does this mean to me? What are my responsibilities? And none of the news is good. I've been with men I sponsor when they hold their child. I have held my children that have happened since then. It's the most magical moment on earth. But when you're in the bondage of self... You are literally in bondage, and you don't even know it. I couldn't see them. I could only see me projected on them, and their beauty got distorted and become ugliness. And my, my brother said, get in the car. I packed your stuff. I go, no, I need to go inside. And he goes, no, you don't. 
And my sponsor, Bill C., says the most spiritual sentence in Alcoholics Anonymous is get in the car. <laughs> and I got in the car, and I went, scariest day of my life, I, walking in that hospital. Remember that? Anybody who was too busy for rehab? <laughs> and I, I went into the hospital, and I was terrified. I didn't have my medicine. The second scariest day is when? Walking out, right? Because now i got to face the world. I get out, and i got to move. Well, I didn't have what happened. And I'm going to talk about the second step. I, I, my brother drove me home, and he said, uh, I'm going to get to step two and a half, I could tell. But uh, <laughs> my brother drove me home, and he pushed me out of the car, and he said, go to a meeting. And I lied. I lied all the time back then. And I said, of course I'm going to go to a meeting. And I'm walking up my steps going, I'm not going to a meeting. I just spent 30 days in the rehab. i got to go visit mom. I got to do my laundry. I got to get a job. I got to go see Phoebe Rose. I got to figure stuff out. And I open up my door, which was strangely not locked, and there's a huge party in my living room, and I live there all by myself. <laughs> People I don't even know have blaring music I don't even like over my stereo. Somebody hands me a beer. Actually, it wasn't a beer, it was a Coors. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm standing there. And I'm looking, there are girls in bikinis snorting cocaine off my glass table, right? There's guys smoking pot in my kitchen. A lot of my stuff's disappeared. And I got this beer in my hand, and I had a thought. Remember those involuntary electrical synapses? And my thought was, Matthew, you officially have nothing. You have no instruments. You have no prospects. You have no character. You have no self-respect. You have you have come to the point where you have nothing. And I thought to myself, what could I sign my name under that belongs to me? And I had one thing, and it was 30 days. So if you're in here and you are one of the days, or one of the months, or one of the years, I hope it's the most precious thing you've got. Because I put that beer down, and I ran away from girls in bikinis snorting cocaine off my glass safe. <laughs> And I did not have a connection to a higher power. Let's hear it for God, man. And I, I'm running down the street to where? You know, like, that's my apartment. And, and I, there was a phone booth. There's a lot of young people in here. They were made of glass and they were rectangular. And they had like doors from spaceships on them. And uh, they had phones the size of nuclear warheads. And... Uh, and I, I called AA. True story. I called AA and I told the guy almost everything I've told you so far. It's like, I'm a rock star, man. And there's a baby and my mom had cancer. And, you know, and, uh, and the guy's done. okay, okay, he's waiting for me to shut up. And then he goes, where are you? And I, I looked, they were glass. I looked out the window and I said, I'm on the corner of Burl and Redondo Beach Boulevard. And he goes, wow, that's weird. And I go, why? And he goes, there's a meeting right across the street from where you're standing. And it starts in 15 minutes. And I said, so what do you think I should do? It's like, like, that's awesome. Uh, but I forgot my fez, you know. Uh, I need hell, you know. I did, that's what I said to the guy. But Grace, right? If that meeting were two blocks farther, I wouldn't be here. All I had to do was walk across the street, and I did. And I didn't do it very happily, and I was afraid. 
And I left that meeting after an hour. The guy got up and spoke. He had a suit on. I'll never forget. I actually remember what the first speaker I ever heard said. He said, And I'm like, I'm screwed. And, uh, and then he pointed to the steps and English fell out of his mouth. He said, these are tools for living. And I go, all right, I'll, I'll focus on that. And uh, I'm trying to read these things. I have a degree in literature. I graduated at the top of my class at UC at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And I looked at the woman next to me and said, why are they in Chinese, man? Yeah. Like, I, I didn't know what they meant. And uh, I got up to leave, and I'm standing out there smoking a cigarette, and I don't know where I'm going to go. And this guy walks up and said, hey, you're Neil's brother. I said, that's right. And he said, I heard you look like crap. And I said, well, that was 30 days ago. I've been working on myself. And, uh, and all that really meant was I went to sleep at night, and I got up in the morning, and then I went to the cafeteria where they put food in front of me. Like, I didn't really apply myself. And, uh, but he goes, you need a ride home. And I, I, I always think it's funny. I ran to my first AA meeting. So I go, yeah, I need a ride home. And then we got in his car, and he said, where do you live? And I, I can't tell him. I can't go there. And I felt so alone now. I'm like, and he goes, Why aren't you, what's wrong, man? And I go, well, I told him about the party. And he goes, we can't go there. <laughs> and he goes, where do your parents live? And he said, don't they live nearby? And he knew where they lived, but I didn't think he did. And I said, we can't go there. Because my perception, this for all of you in your first year, my perception was they're very good people. They love each other. My mother is terminally ill. Their loser son, fresh out of rehab with this illegitimate child, which I, I don't say that lightly, she's legitimate now, is not going to show up on their porch and bring more trouble. I'm tired of being a problem. We're not going there. So the guy dropped me off at my uh, parents' house <laughs> because you don't listen to newcomers. I didn't know, you know. And... Uh, and I walked up on the porch, and there's all this grace. I look back, and if all of you look back, even you with, with one day, you with a month, you know, if you look back, you'll see the grace. If you're in here, you're having it. If you're in here, you're swimming in it, but you can't see it sometimes because you get in the bondage yourself, but it's always there. And at this one other thing, I walked up on the porch and knocked on the door, and I wanted to run. They were important, mighty people, and I felt very small. But I looked down on the porch, and there was a guitar pick with my signature on it, on the porch. And my parents were fastidious people. And I hadn't been there in six or seven months. And I kept staring at it, and they opened the door, and they went to the door together. They're from the Midwest. They're from Chicago. And my mom was strapped to a giant oxygen can. This is 30 years ago. And they opened the door, and they were glad to see me. So glad. It's like it escaped out of them. And I was disarmed by that. Now, I told you my perception. The reality was they're married for 45 years at that time. They're madly in love with each other. My mom's dying of cancer. My dad's beside himself with fear. And they're laying awake at night praying rosaries that I will be restored. And I showed up. And I said these words. Will you help me? Now, I have raised four children to adulthood as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, they're all over 18. <laughs> but, you know. And I can tell you, my favorite sentence is, Dad, can you help me? 
and I, I'm very close to my children. I'll tell you about Phoebe in a little bit. And anyway, so I went in there, and the second step is I woke up in the morning, and I felt like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I'm like, where the hell am I? You know, <laughs> I just got out of rehab. I'm in my old bedroom. There's a full-size poster of Eric Clapton staring at me, and I'm like, I'm back. You know, and uh, <laughs> I had regressed, and uh, I had a little uh, a meeting directory from Coffee Shop Jim, the guy who my brother knew who dropped me off at my house. So I ran down to my dad who's sitting there eating breakfast. I go, hey, dad, there's a meeting at 7 a.m. It's called the Attitude Adjustment Club meeting, and it's at the A. Lane O. Club. Can I, can, I, can I go to that? And he said, if you're going to a meeting, just take the keys. Don't ask me, because my brother was rose from the ashes, you know. So I ran out, and I go, okay, I got to get away from the uncomfortable place. And then I showed up to you people, and I was like, uh-oh. I walked in, and the A Lane No Club was very crowded in the morning meeting. And I walked in, and everybody made me uncomfortable by being nice. You know? And, I, and they're, they're, like, hugging each other, and they're pretending the coffee's good, and there's a lot of deception happening. And I sat down, and there were a lot of want, 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 wants, and I'm like, all right, I can't take this anymore, and I ran back to my parents' house, and I did that three times a day as I got uncomfortable with my loving, kind, forgiving parents, because I was not a normal person, and they freaked me out, and then I'd run to an AA meeting, and you guys are, are definitely not normal people, and you freaked me out, and one day... You know, it says in the big book, came to believe. And believe me, Bill agonized over the words in the steps. It doesn't say someone read we agnostics at us till we cried uncle. It says came to believe. It's a personal experience. And I woke up early in the morning one day and I smelled breakfast. And I thought, Dad's trying to make breakfast. Bad idea. And I ran down there because my dad had been taken care of. He was a World War II vet. My mom cooked and cleaned, and my dad worked. He built his own company. My dad liberated Dachau, right? My dad was a hero. He had a bronze star. And I ran down there. Yeah, he was a real hero. And I ran down there, and I go, Dad, I'll help you because there's eggs and shit everywhere, and it's not good. <laughs> and I'm trying to help him, and I'm, I'm scooping stuff up, and he starts telling me how much he loves my mother. And I look at the side of his face, and I thought, this man is so beautiful. Like, he's this mighty guy in my eyes because he did all this intense stuff when he was 18, 19. Then I was a surprise, and he, he worked harder and founded his own company after I was born and did all this for me, and he's just telling me this intimacy and this, these details of real love. And I thought, how lucky am I? And I helped make breakfast, and I looked at my watch and go, Dad, it's 10 to 7. i got to get down to the club because... It's a 7 a.m. meeting. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, i got to get down there because Carol goes to that meeting, and she likes to speak inappropriately about her sex life. <laughs> and I like Carol. You know, it's like, she's a free spirit. And uh, she was, like, weekly entertained. And, and God bless the Carols of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Some of you are like, I know Carol. And some of you are like, oh, shit. Yeah. So I got down there, and I'm at the meeting, and I'm, this guy, Bill, starts going, I got a lot of opinions. They're just opinions, but you should have them too. And I laughed. And then I looked next to Bill, and there was his wife, and I thought, that's what I want. Look how happy they are. And then I saw Carol, and she, whatever, you know, I went to an orgy last night. Do I have to write thank you notes? You know, like, whatever she was, whatever, you know. And I saw you 
and I saw my dad, and I came to believe. Just like that. Grace. I got enough relief from the bondage itself that I saw the beauty that was in front of me. I actually thought about this when we were saying the serenity prayer earlier. Don't let familiarity dissipate the magic of the beautiful things that are in front of you. I have a wife that I've been married for 27 years. I'm going to tell you about it for a few minutes. And she dazzles me. She excites me. I love watching her try to walk across the room. I love listening to her talk to our children. And she is very familiar. But I work these steps. I get constant relief from the bondage itself. I meditate. I can't tell you how important it is that I meditate. So when I wake up in the morning, she's new. And we say the serenity prayer around here, and people go, God, grant me serenity, step thing, I cannot change the words, change blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like the way you read the traditions. I felt like I was in the military. <laughs> and, uh, but this prayer that I, I used to like, I'm always the head of the class, right? You guys say, this is the serenity prayer, and I listen to it, and I go, basically, that's God, help me put up with the crap I don't like, right? <laughs> Clearly, that's what it really means. And then I stayed sober a while, and then I started sponsoring people, and I did a fifth step, and I did the work, and I, I, I got the lame job, and I got the better job. And then it says in the big book, we will comprehend the word serenity. That's one of the promises. What it really says is, God, grant me the spiritual centeredness in the peace of humanness to accept the world as it is. I might even say to welcome it as it is. The courage to change the things that are defectively happening from my end. And the wisdom to know the difference. And I can tell you, if you actually, you start off in AA kicking and screaming against the world as it is. And after a while, you realize that doesn't work. Or doesn't work, sorry, English major, and I just said that. That, that doesn't work, right? And after a while, you do some stuff and you go, okay, I'll just accept it. I just accept it. I accept that I'm a father with a woman I don't like across town. That's my fault. I'm doing this. I learned to really respect and appreciate Anna. She's a great mom. And I, I, all this stuff, I got a lame job, yada, yada, yada. I accepted it. Then I started to get some serenity and go, well, I woke up to my day. And my day is not that bad. And if you start to accept things as they are, and you really courageously change things that you can change, wisdom is the natural byproduct of that. You'll very soon know the difference between what you have to accept and what you have to change. I'm going to go about five minutes long because I want to tell you about something amazing. I was told my sponsor, Bill, I said, I'm praying that prayer, relieve me of the bondage yourself. And Bill, Tommy knows Bill, he's smoking a cigar, leaning back outside the men's stagman. He goes, looks at me, squints at me, he goes, why don't you help God out? I go, okay, how do I do that? And he goes, why don't you relieve yourself of the bondage of self? And I'm like, what are you, the Riddler? <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means. And, and he said, why don't you go into this? Oh, no, he goes, why don't you do something nice for somebody and don't tell anybody? And I, my first thought was, why would I do that? <laughs> so I walk in the meeting. I got Norm's bar stool. I have the same seat at the Monday Night Men's Tag for 20-something years. But at that time, I was like a year and a half sober. I walk in, and I'm working at these lame jobs. And I sit down, and they go, do you have anybody from out of town? This guy raises his hand and my name's Kevin. I'm visiting from Australia. I'll be here once a month. And I thought, I'm going to remember that guy's name. 
He'll be back in a month. That will be my grand altruistic act. <laughs> and I'll be relieved of the bondage itself, right? And 30 days later, I forgot all about the guy. He walks in. I'm like, Kevin. It was like, I'm like running across the room, right? And I run up to the guy and I go, Kevin, welcome back to the greatest meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world. When you found us, you found the epicenter of sobriety. And he said, you remembered my name. And he, Australian accent. And I said, that's right. And he goes, what do you do for a living? I said, I start newspapers on a loading dock. You know. And uh, I deliver packages. Um, and he goes, I didn't understand that. But why don't you come outside? And he gave me his card and he said, come to my office and wear a suit. Wear a suit. I want to I talk to you about a job. And his car, he was the vice president of an international airline. So I went and got with, like Tommy's family, we all have our one suit. We have a black suit for weddings and wakes. Weddings and wakes, right, Tommy? But I'm a newcomer. I got one pair of shoes. And you may not even remember the shoes. They were hush puppy shoes. <laughs> they were like brown bricks, right? They were, I don't know why they were cool. The Beast Boys wore them. So I wore them, right? But they, looked, they couldn't have been more obtrusive-looking brown casual shoes. But I naively think... No one will look at my shoes. And I get my DMV together. You know, it's like this thick. I got arrested three times for one DUI. And uh, I go there, and he opens the door of this beautiful office on Century, looks at my shoes, and bursts out laughing. So now my shoes are like four inches bigger, right? And he goes, come on in. I want you to meet the head of human resources. And this Hawaiian goddess floats across the room. And my shoes, like, are getting bigger and, and bigger. And she looks at me, and she looks at my shoes, and she's Japanese, and, and her face gets tight. And I know what that means. It's not good. And, uh, and he goes, yeah, go in there. And, and, and he went in his corner office, and we went right next door. And I'm sitting in there, and she's looking at my, my resume. It's got 12 years I went to a party. You know, the league, I don't, that's not on my resume, you know. I had a job, then I had a lame job 12 years later, and I can't, you please no references from that lame job. And, uh, and she doesn't ask me any questions, right? And she's looking at my shoes. And now i got giant red clown shoes on. And I'm like, i got to get out of here. Why did I even come here? This isn't right. And she goes, in, she goes, hold on just a second, in a really patronizing voice. And I go, okay. And I even thought I could make a run for it. Like, I could act like I never came. And she, she went into his office, and I hear through the wall, he's not going to fly the goddamn planes. He's going to put people on them. <laughs> And I got really relaxed. And she comes in and she says, we're going to hire you. And I said, damn right, you're going to. No, I didn't. I didn't. I said, thank you. Thank you. What is this job? And that is grace. I'm a self-centered guy. My sponsor said, do something nice. For 13 seconds, I remembered somebody else. And I got lifted out of my poverty. And I will tell you now, there is a formula. I've watched it for years all over the world. Surrender, so you can get out of the bondage of self. Grace, which is always there. And then love. Love like you can't imagine. And love that doesn't come from out here. Love that comes from here. So I went to work, and I was living with my parents, and I was going to meetings, and I was going to work, and one day I could afford a guitar on my way to work. I'm paying everybody back. And I walk into this music store, and I buy this beautiful Taylor Dan Curry single cutaway acoustic guitar. And if you play guitar, you're jealous of me now. <laughs> and that's okay. I have self-esteem. And uh, 
But I got this guitar and I go into work and no one trusts me at work, which is so funny. I got hired by the vice president. I don't drink and I don't chase women. I don't, women, I got to stay away from them, right? And be, they all think I'm a mole, but, and which is great because I've been the cool guy at work and I always got fired. And I'm like the uncool guy. But I got this guitar and I keep visiting it and petting it at lunchtime and breaks. And, you know, if you've ever had a tailor, they come in leather wooden cases. It, they're just, it's sexy as hell. And... Uh, I walk out to the bus stop that night, and I had that feeling. It's the newcomer lonely feeling. Remember when you got your license, and you got insurance, and you walked up to one of your buddies in AA, and you go, hey, I got a driver's license. I got insurance. And they go, hey, you're 40 years old. You should have a driver's license. But we want a parade, you know. So I'm standing out there with this guitar, And I realized I'm going home to my mom and my dad who think for some reason that the guitar was my downfall. Both my uncles have died of alcoholism. My grandfather was an investment banker in the 30s. He was 12-step by Bill Wilson. And and he died of alcoholism. But for some reason, the music led me astray. (laughs) So I don't want... I'm like, this is going to be no fun to take this guitar home. So I'm at the employee bus stop. It's 10, 15 at night. I turn to this woman. I said, hey can I show you my new guitar I just bought? And it was a woman from British Airways. And she turns and looks at me and she said, I couldn't believe she said this. She goes, I don't look at strange men's guitars. (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) And I realized she thinks I'm hitting on her. I'm like, babe, I'm not hitting on you. I live with my parents. I go to AA. I have a baby that's exactly as old as I am sober. You want to go out? Like, I'm not hitting on you. But I'm bummed. No one wants to see it. We get on the bus, and she's smushed against me because it's crowded. Now she looks really nervous. <laughs> and, and she has a book in her hand called Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. It's a beautiful book. And I said, oh, I've read that book. I want her to chill, you know. And she goes, cut to the chase. Do you believe in God in this beautiful British accent, which kind of took me by surprise. And I said, well, yes. God saved my life. And I said, but I don't think I believe in the God that you believe in. And she said, well, I don't believe in God. I said, well, tell me about that. And for 20 minutes on this bus, this woman who I slowly realized was stunningly beautiful was telling me why she didn't believe in God. And at the end of the bus ride, all I remember saying is, I don't know anyone that would believe in the God that you don't believe in. I hope someday you find the God He beats my heart and grows my hair. I got out of the bus and I saw her and I just, she was so lovely and I was so relaxed. And everybody who's male in this room knows that's called a spiritual experience, right? I I didn't start lying to her when I realized she was pretty. I didn't go, you know, really I'm an astronaut. I'm just, you know, killing time between moon flights. And uh, I just was, I was me and she was her and, and it felt nice. So I went back, I walked over to her and I go, hey, do you, want, do you want to have dinner sometime? And she did not think so. <laughs> she was like, oh, wrong. Look at my guitar. I've read that bit. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, Jesus. Like, I, said, I actually said, I go, you know, no is the complete answer. <laughs> and she said, no. And I said, that's too bad. I think we're missing something. And I don't have that kind of confidence with women. But I liked me. I liked my own company. And that was new to me. And I walked to my car and I was sad. And I drove home and my dad used to wait up for me. And 
Or no, he'd fall asleep in his chair, and when I close the door, he'd wake up and act like he waited up for me. He's been doing it since I was 15, and I always give him that credit. And I sat down, and I knew he was going to talk about my mom and start crying. And I said, Dad, I, I met this girl, and she felt like home. I, never, I just came out of my mouth, and he goes, really? And he got super interested. Now, for so long, I thought, God, wasn't my dad sweet? He got so interested. And then I realized, like five years later, he wanted me to move out. <laughs> right? And he goes, tell me about it. And I told him about the whole, that what I told you. And she, he goes, that's not over. And I go, ooh, Dad, <laughs> you didn't hear her. Yeah. It's over. And he goes, trust me, son, that's not over. Because my dad intuitively knew about grace. He lived it. He was happily married eventually for 50 years to Dorothy Mitchell. So I went back to work the next day, and I only thought about her like 183 times. And I, I saw she was working, so I ran to catch the early bus because I, I was embarrassed. And I heard these high heels, and she tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, I think I was rude to you last night. And I said, that's okay. And she said, I don't want to go out with you. I said, you have been very clear about that. <laughs> and she said... Uh, but I'll miss this bus if you want to have coffee. And I, said, and I knew she wanted to have coffee to alleviate her conscience, because I'm Catholic, I know all about that. And I said, I'll take it. And we missed all the buses. And two, 17 days later, two and a half weeks later, she proposed to me, and we've been married for 28 years. Bang! That's right. That's right. And I love that woman like nobody's business. And I have not let familiarity diminish the beauty that I see in her. And we've been through some stuff. You know, first Anna and Phoebe and then Phoebe. And, and, and we, had, we all bonded together and raised her. It was really cool. And then I, we, she got, I, I made her pregnant. And, uh, and, and, you know, it was really great. I got in the car with her and I went to the right hospital. It was like, it's like normal. And, uh, and when we got to the hospital, the people waiting for us were Anna and Phoebe, both times. Then we adopted uh, my daughter's best friend, my, my 12-year-old Phoebe. Uh, we adopted Abby. And, and, uh, and we had a wonderful life. You know, I'm, I'm in AA, and, and I'm doing all these amazing things. And, uh, and then one day I came home, and my wife was bouncing across the floor. And she was having a stroke. We'd been married for seven years. And uh, we had a one-year-old... And the four-year-old, and Phoebe was nine. And she became paralyzed and brain damaged 20 years ago. And uh, we got an ambulance, and I called Bill, and I called my sister, because my parents had passed away, and I called her mother in England. And we went to the hospital, and they said, we can't, we can't save your wife. We've called a helicopter. You need to go to a specialist. And we flew in a helicopter to UC Irvine. And my wife is so cute. She's you know, had having a stroke. And I can hear. I got the headphones on. And there's a female helicopter pilot. We landed on a street that Disneyland's on. They block Catella. And I heard my wife through the headphones go, can we go over the Grand Canyon? I've never been in a helicopter before. And, uh, <laughs> and the guy said, the, one, the, the medic said, we're going over the Matterhorn. You know, and... Uh, and and we landed, and I ran in, and, and there's nothing they could do for her. And, and I called my sponsor at 3 in the morning, and he said, I need you to hang up. I need you to call my sponsor. I go, dude, I don't, want, I don't even know your sponsor that well. And he goes, please hang up and call my sponsor. It's 3 in the morning. 
So I called his sponsor, Jay. And Jay goes, I need you to talk to my wife. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I want to talk to Bill. And now I'm talking to somebody I really hardly know, Adele. And he goes, seriously, trust me. I want you to talk to Adele. And Adele got on the phone and said, what's going on, darling? And I said, Philip has had a massive stroke. She'd had a tear in her carotid artery. And, and it, she said, darling, I've had seven strokes. Let me tell you what your wife's feeling right now. Band together to solve their problems. I got calm. And then Jay picked up the phone and he said, well, you've always wanted to be the world's greatest lover. Now is your chance. And I knew what to do when I went back in that hospital room. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. We've had dark times. It's hard. You want to learn what powerlessness is? Be in love with someone who has brain damage. The, the paralysis is nothing. We work around that. The brain damage is challenging, right? She's, she's very present. She's very lively. Speaks great, but she forgets things all the time. Actually, I had a funny moment with Bill. I called Bill when we were like eight years into this disability. And I said, Bill, I'm just not married to the same girl I was eight years ago. And he goes, <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> and, There's a great line I heard in an A meeting. I'm going to finish up in just a second. I heard this line in an A meeting where a guy said, you know what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me? If you think about it, life sucks. But if you live it, it's awesome. And I want to finish this up with what happened in March. At, you know, Phoebe's 30, we both turned 30 May 16th. And Phoebe's a psych nurse up in uh, Portland. And I live in Southern California. And she called me and goes, Dad, I need you to come up. I need you to be here March 10th. I go, okay. I got pipped together and flew up and got a hotel room. And she called me and said, Dad, it's time. And I said, okay. I went to the hospital and I got pipped up into the room. And Phoebe gave birth to my grandson. And she looked like a truck had hit her. <laughs> and she handed me little Emmett. And I looked at Emmett, and I didn't feel like the worst person on earth. I felt like I was 10 feet tall. And I said, Emmett, no matter where you roam on this earth, as long as I have breath in me, I have your back. And I looked at Phoebe, who has seen her dad, and we just started bawling. Now, I just want to say this last thing. My son wrote an essay to get into college, and it's for you, and it's about you. As a child, it's hard to understand why systems sometimes fail or break. As a child, it's hard to understand why your parents stop laughing. Shortly after the birth of my youngest sister, my, father, my mother suffered from a severe stroke caused by a weak artery in her neck. After this, things were different. My mother walked with a limp and had trouble reading books to us. My father walked like a ghost and forgot how to warmly hold his two children the way he once so easily did. I firmly believe that every time life pulls the earth from under you, it sends a rope in after you. After my mother's stroke, friends of my father would come over during the week to help us out. And every Sunday night, they would have a men's AA meeting in my backyard. As a child, they became my family. They slowly brought laughter and love back into the house that had become so cold and dark. They were the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they have never left us. They gave me the right questions to ask of life and practical advice on how to navigate my way through. They taught me that everybody is trying their best, so we must always be kind, honest, and forgiving. And their words have served me all of my days. Thanks for letting me share.
Thanks, Matthew, and uh, the committee. We appreciate you coming. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we all help me close this meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Who keeps us sober? Our Father, who art in heaven. 